0: Good morning, High Point Church. Our scripture today is Matthew chapter 8 verses 28 through chapter 9 verses 13. If you have a pew Bible in front of you, that's on page 1480. While you're turning there, I also want to remind you that today, after both services, at the end of the service, we'll have Ask Me Anything, or AMA, where during the service, you can text in your questions. There'll be a number that's on the screen periodically. So if you have anything that triggers your mind that you want to ask about, feel free to send that in at any point, and then they'll be discussed um, following that closing worship. So Matthew chapter eight, starting in verse 28. When he arrived at the other side, in the region of the Gadarenes, two demon-possessed men coming from the tombs met him. They were so violent that no one could pass that way. What do you want with us, son of God, they shouted. Have you come here to torture us? Before the appointed time, some distance from them, a large herd of pigs was feeding. The demons begged Jesus, if you drive us out, send us into the herd of pigs. He said to them, go. So they came out and went into the pigs and the whole herd rushed down the steep bank into the lake and died in the water. Those tending the pigs ran off, went into the town and reported all this including what happened to the demon-possessed men. Then the whole town went out to meet Jesus. And when they saw him, they pleaded with him to leave their region. Jesus stepped into a boat, crossed over, and came to his own town. Some men brought to him a paralyzed man lying on a mat. When Jesus saw their faith, he said to the man, "'Take heart, son. Your sins are forgiven.'" At this, some of the teachers of the law said to themselves, this fellow is blaspheming. Knowing their thoughts, Jesus said, why do you entertain evil thoughts in your hearts? Which is easier to say, your sins are forgiven, or to say, get up and walk? But I want you to know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins. So he said to the paralyzed man, get up your mat, get up, take your mat, and go home. Then the man got up and went home. When the crowd saw this, they were filled with awe, and they praised God, who had given such authority to man. As Jesus went on from there, he saw a man named Matthew sitting at the tax collector's booth. Follow me, he told him, and Matthew got up and followed him. While Jesus was having dinner at Matthew's house, many tax collectors and sinners came and ate with him and his disciples. When the Pharisees saw this, They asked his disciples, why does your teacher eat with tax collectors and sinners? On hearing this, Jesus said, it's not the healthy who need a doctor, but the sick. But go and learn what this means. I desire mercy, not sacrifice. For I have come to call the right, I have not come to call the righteous, but sinners.
1: Thanks, Joy. Hey, everyone. I was supposed to preach on healing a couple of weeks ago, but I was sick. (laughs) Sounds kind of ironic, right? Um, Which uh, gave me a little bit of stress about what to preach. I was going to get to preach about this a couple of times, you know, and I'm just going to get one shot at it. And I kind of hate that. I feel like we're always moving on fast from things because— trying to hold people's attention. Uh, In case you don't know too, also there's going to be a Good Friday service also at Blackhawk, which is going to be put on by the African American Council of Churches. Food is at 6 p.m. and the service is at 7 p.m. So if you want to get a feel for a little bit different kind of Good Friday service, uh, that'll happen there. Okay. Um, One of the things I don't really like that happens in life sometimes is being misunderstood. I don't know if that's ever happened to you. I seem to be kind of prone to it. Um, And it's it's really frustrating because you're trying to get something across and it's clearly not getting across. And you think, you know, normally I'm pretty good at communicating what's happening here. And one of the things you have to figure out is, is the problem mainly with me or with the person receiving the signals that I am sending, right? And sometimes the problem isn't with you, right? And one of the things that comes up again and again in the scriptures Is that um, the person most misunderstood in the scriptures is actually not you or me. It's actually God. And when God thinks about who the problem is with in terms of the sending and receiving of those signals, he's, he's pretty clear and honest with us that we're the problem. Does that make sense? When you look at Jesus' ministry and how he heals people, The things that he does are pretty well pointed at what he's trying to show that he's doing to help us understand that we misunderstand God. Okay, so if you look at the main healings that make up his ministry, um, you could say uh, healing the blind, the blind see, the deaf hear, right? There's a lot of paralyzed people who are healed. And the thing that he does the most is cast out demons. He exercises demons and frees people from the slavery of demonic oppression. All of these, he says at different places, are signs, meaning there's something that points to something else. Like that we as the human listener are blind. We refuse to hear what we're being told. What that creates is a virtuous paralysis. Like we can't actually do what our bodies and lives are for. And What it what it's the result of is a certain kind of paralysis or or a certain kind of possession Like we actually are enslaved by the very thing that's holding us And so what we need is to see where we're blind, to be able to hear where we're deaf To be released or loosed from the paralysis that makes us unable to do what we were made to do And part of that is we have to be like freed from an internal slavery that is an internal enslavement That's like possession, right? And so If you you start traveling through Jesus' ministry, it gets really clear that one of the main, maybe the main thing that inhibits healing is misunderstanding. Because Jesus teaches that um, human healing begins with his supernatural work of salvation, which comes on condition of faith and repentance. That is, repentance does not mean being good enough for God to accept you. Repentance means changing your mind about the things that you were committed to that God thinks are false, right? It comes from the—the the Greek term is metanoia. It's, it literally means to change your mind. But, it, but to say it also means to turn around is also valid. It's to change your mind. Look, I'm going the wrong direction. I need to turn around. Does that make sense? And then faith, which is to really trust and put your weight in belief on that which God says can bear your weight, right? And then when that happens, salvation happens. That is, God comes in forgives our sins, fills us with the Spirit, begins to transform us to be more like himself because we're we're ready to turn towards him because we've turned away from that which competed with it, and we also are willing to believe him. And once we're ready to listen and we start misunderstanding him less, then we can see and hear and the paralysis of our capacity to do what he's called to do is released some, and the possession, the almost insanity of our commitment to our own sin is loosed, and we have a just completely new way of living, and in that God can then bring about an enormous amount of healing. Does that make sense? Now, you can see that in these three passages (coughs) where Jesus is trying to help people with this misunderstanding, this blindness, right? And so in the first passage, um, he wants to show people that Jesus is the one who can cure the incurable, but in doing so, he will also destroy your unclean pursuits. Jesus is amazing in that he can cure the incurable. He's the only one who can do it. Nobody else—nobody else can cure the thing, and then things Jesus can cure. But when he does it, the result is going to be that he's going to destroy your unclean pursuits, right? So. Jesus gets in a boat. He goes over to the east side of the Sea of Galilee, this place called the Gennesaret. It's a really kind of arid area. It has really steep cliffs that go up um, to a a plain that's a little bit fertile. And so he comes onto the shoreline, and there's like these—basically these crags at the bottom of cliffs, and there's some tombs in them, and there's these two men who live in those tombs. Okay, now Matthew tells us a little bit differently than Mark and Luke. In Mark and Luke, they only talk about one guy. In Matthew, it's two guys. But like what it emphasizes is very different. What what Matthew emphasizes is that they were among the tombs, and they were so violent and uncontrollable that nobody went anywhere near this area. It wasn't—Matthew is not focused on what these guys were doing to themselves, which is what Matthew and Luke focus on. They focus on how dangerous they made it for everybody. Everybody knew about these two men, right, which is going to be important because later the shepherds are going to go tell the town about everything that happened, including to these two men, because everybody knows about these two men. And not to go near them, right? So then Jesus walks up, and they come out because Jesus doesn't care. He's not supposed to be there. And immediately these crazy demon-filled men are begging, and they say, Son of God, have you come to torture us before the appointed time? Which is, okay, see I've been reading some stuff getting ready to preach John's gospel, and there's a, a number of like people who are critical of the Bible, and they go, look, in John's gospel Jesus is like this big like God figure. Like he's like this book of signs, the book of wonders. He's, he's claiming to be equal with God. It's like he's teaching that he's the son of God, and it's like, he's, it's like big God gospel. But in Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, you know, Jesus is, is like the son of man. He's like this—he's the prophet. He's like a messianic figure, but he's like profoundly humanly depicted, right? And like these, these, these just don't agree, which is such classic nonsense, right? Like, When demons beg for your mercy, and they assume you know whatever the appointed time is for them to be tortured, they assume that you like understand angels and demons, everything that's happening in that realm, the timeline of salvation history, and that you are the one who is going to ultimately torture them because you're the divine Lord and King. The idea that Matthew doesn't really present Jesus as this massive divine figure is nonsense. You just have to be able to read narrative rather than conversation. Jesus reveals his divinity in John's gospel with miracles and conversation. In Matthew, he reveals it with a story. You have to be able to read a story like a story, right? So Jesus is this figure, right? And then the demons are like, listen, (coughs) if you're gonna send us out, send us into the pigs, which seems weird, right? It it was normal in the ancient world for—in exorcisms for like there to be some kind of hoopla When a demon came out of somebody, but not this much. Not running a herd of 2,000 pigs down a bank to death. Do you understand? So that's what happens, right? He says, go. One word and 2,000 demons or whatever go and seize this group of pigs. They go down and they die, right? So then the shepherds are like, well, this isn't good, right? So they run back to the local town. and They're like, hey, this is what happens. Now Matthew is very clear. He says that when they told about this, It says they told about what happened, generally, which includes the pigs, obviously. And then it says, and, especially in this, including what happened to the two men. So everybody who hears the story hears about two main things. That the herd of pigs is all dead, and in the ancient world, in a context like this, it's pretty likely that everybody in the town who owned pigs, their pigs were in that herd. Right? Even as as, um, recently—my mom's in her 80s, and when she was a kid in Italy in this very mountainous village, like um, lots of people had an animal that like literally lived in their house, and in the morning the shepherd would come through and everybody's— you just put your animal in the herd and they'd watch your animals for the day, right? And so this wasn't like one rich guy's pigs. Like these pigs probably belonged to lots of people in the town, and they all lost their hogs, right? So they come out. It says the whole town comes out, right? And see, they have a choice, right? Because Jesus is just entering the region. He just got off the boat. He hasn't even climbed up the cliffs yet, right? He's not even in the region. But they know two things are happening. One, Jesus is curing the incurable. These people could do nothing for these men, except avoid them. That's it. And that in curing those two men, he set in motion a series of events that caused the death of all 2,000 of their pigs. Now here's something you might not know. If you don't know this, the Gennesaret was a Jewish region around the Sea of Galilee. Okay, these were Jews. Now the Torah explicitly says Jews are not supposed to have pigs. Pigs are considered an unclean animal. Goats and sheep were like better fitted to the train. For whatever reason, God didn't want them to have pigs because um, he wanted his people to forego some some good things in life, like bacon. And so <laughs> because pigs didn't chew their cud, they were considered unclean animals. So these people weren't even supposed to own these animals. They're not supposed to touch them. They're not supposed to eat anything from them, right? And you can kind of imagine how this happened, right? Like, you know, they're all living their best life now out there. And somebody's like, you know, the people over here, because they're kind of on the region—the next region is not a Jewish region. It's a mixed Gentile region. So, of course, those people had pigs. And they're like, Man, those people have bacon. And like, you can just— all your extra food you just feed it to them and they're like chickens they magically turn stuff into food and like this is great and so they're like yeah, maybe we'll get a couple of pigs like so somebody was like I'm gonna get a pig and then you know like pigs have like they, they get like 50 piglets in like 12 minutes right and they're like ready to kill in like six months and they're just like these big fat things you're like this is amazing you know and then other people are like maybe I'll get a pig we'll, like, like Jan let's us get a pig these, these pigs are pretty great you know like and then you know apparently the rabbi was like oh, maybe they'll maybe they'll tithe on their pigs you know It's like, like. and so like, It just kind of like, it just kind of gets away from them. Before you know it, you got like 2,000 pigs, and you are like heavily economically invested in sin. And then, like in one fell swoop, Jesus lets the demons go on these things, and they just kill all of them. It just wipes it out. And it's a shock, you know? And one of the things that Matthew wants you to take away from this is the tragedy of what happens when these town people come out they have a choice. They can receive the one who can cure the incurable, who will also destroy their unclean pursuits. And they choose their unclean pursuits. Do you understand? Like, they misunderstand Jesus. They—they would rather have whatever they're pursuing that they think is going to make them happy, and if that's going to be endangered, by this one who comes and cures the incurable, well, all the worse for him. And so they ask him to leave, and he does. Right? And so one of the misunderstandings that you and I are going to have to overcome if we're going to experience something like healing is, make no mistake, Jesus can cure the incurable. There is no one else who we're going to find out in the next passage can forgive sins, can wipe away the human debt of guilt, can bring the peace of god can change your heart to be reordered to the good like there there are some things in us that are very deep and very dark and he can cure them and when he does he is also going to destroy your worldliness pursuits the things that you pursue that you know or you're going to find out he doesn't allow because they're actually part of the sickness he doesn't he doesn't leave the sickness he's come to cure he doesn't come to forgive sins and then encourage you to incur as much more guilt as possible. Right? The two kind of go together. He wants to totally redeem your whole life. And he wanted to get these people to figure out what happened with the pigs. How did this happen, you guys? And they knew he was going to confront them. Even after all the pigs were dead, they were back down to zero pigs. Well, who knows how many they had back at the house, you know, but like they, were, they had lost the like, 2,000 pigs and like all they had were like the piglets, you know, oinking around back there at the house, and they were not willing to debate this. Right? And listen, there are people in this room. There are people all over the city. And they know that there is something very special about Jesus the Christ. They know. They know it. But they are not gonna marry the person they're living with. They're not gonna give up on their pursuit of wealth the way they want to. They're not gonna give up any of their privacy to open their home to hospitality to people that God might put in their path. They're not gonna They're not gonna realize they have no right to judge the bad people that they think are really bad, that they want to attack in person, or disband from their friend group, or hate on digital medias. There's stuff they're committed to, and they're not gonna give it up, because they don't—they don't really believe they're dying of the incurable. They don't believe that they're—they're like pre-dead men among the graves. They think they're fine. They'd rather have the pigs. And it's a misunderstanding of your very being. What will make you eternally happy? What will unleash your full humanity? What will free you from the possession of sin? What will allow you to hear what you have to hear and to see? The truth is it can be seen. But you have to choose. You have to choose between the one who can cure the incurable but will destroy the your pursuits. Right? Second thing is even in your paralysis, forgiveness is your foundational need. Even in paralysis, forgiveness is your foundational need. Most of us have something that's painful and inhibiting and diminishing in our life, that we believe if we presented ourselves before a caring, powerful being, that person would do something about it. And it would be self-evident that that is the thing that should be done. Okay, so in the next passage, Jesus <coughs> goes to what Matthew calls his town. In the context of the gospel, that's just Capernaum. And he's, he's speaking somewhere in some home, and these men bring a paralyzed person and get him in front of him. In the other gospels, it's, it's what they like, they like lower him from the ceiling, if you remember that from Mark's gospel. And Jesus looks at this young man, and it says, when he saw his faith, He says, he said to him, take heart, son, your sins are forgiven. Now that's a little bit more than Mark and Luke record. And Jesus isn't playing a game. Do you understand? He knows that he's messing with them, but to him it's not a game. He is being 100% totally truthful and dealing with the real problem. Now he knows no one else in the room thinks that. He knows that, but he's not playing. He is messing with their misunderstanding by doing the real thing, and then he's going to screw around and explain it. Do you understand? So he says, son, take heart. Your sins are forgiven. Now notice, he doesn't just say— now in Mark's gospel, all Mark records is Jesus saying, your sins are forgiven, because his focus is on the theological controversy with the teachers of the law. But Matthew wants us to focus a little bit more on this man. He says, take heart, i.e. have hope. Receive hope. Now, this guy's paralyzed. It sounds in Mark's gospel like these are younger men. So this guy, maybe he's, maybe he's in his 20s, something like that. Who, know, who knows really? But he seems like a younger man. Never gonna have a family. Never gonna be able to work for a living. You know what that does to men in particular? He has to rely on everybody else to take care of him. He has no life in his mind, probably, right? No hope. His hope is that he's going to be healed by Jesus, and Jesus without healing him says, take courage. Like, receive hope. And then he calls him son. Because in faith, he is the son of God. Paralyzed as he is, right? And then he says, your sins are forgiven, right? That's your hope. The hope I can give you. Here's the hope I give you. You're a son. And as a son, by the faith you've demonstrated you've received mercy, your sins are forgiven. And then he just kind of stands back. And like, can you imagine that room? What would it felt like in that room? What those guys on the ceiling were thinking? You know what I mean? Like, truly. And like the, and like the, the guy who's paralyzed, like there's no record of him saying anything. He's laying there, can't move, and this guy who has has just healed a bunch of people in that town that day looks at him and says, your sins are forgiven. There's no record of him saying that to any of the other people. Why him? What's going on? You know what I mean? And then the the teachers are muttering, and it does not say that Jesus heard them. This is again Matthew showing the divinity of Jesus without saying, Jesus is divine. Okay? Because, all through the Bible, the only one who knows the hearts of men and women is God. Proverbs says, we look on the face, but God sees the heart. Right? God knows the thoughts of the hearts of human beings. He knows what you're thinking, right? And so Jesus, it says, knowing their thoughts, said, why do you entertain such evil thoughts in your mind? And he says, which is easier to say? Your sins are forgiven, or get up and walk. Assuming, I think, that saying your sins are forgiven is practically easier because it's unverifiable, right? I can say your sins are forgiven and like be like, there it is. Your sins are forgiven. And nobody in this room knows if his sins are forgiven, right? It's easy, right? But it's, but it's way bigger than a healing. See, Jesus' point is, okay, listen, it's not obvious which is easier. It's, it's, It's easy socially for me to say your sins are forgiven because I don't have to put anything up. I don't have to show that there's any empirical authority in me at all of what I can do. So that's easy. But in spiritual reality, it is way, way, way harder to actually forgive sins than to heal somebody. Way easier. He says, and so you know I've already done the harder thing. I'll do the easier thing. And he heals this man, right? (coughs) Right? which the people said, it says that they were, they feared, or they were in awe is how it's translated here. But the word is fear in the original. They glorified God, right? And they, and they were, they were astonished that God had given such authority to men, which is kind of a pun thing, which I'm not going to take time to get into right now, because Jesus called himself the Son of Man, which was a revelation of his divinity. But they misunderstood him, right? But here's the point. You will present yourself to God in your life at various times with what you feel like is tantamount to a paralysis. A condition in yourself that is so acute, so painful, so difficult that you would think that if you were just revealed in front of somebody who actually had any power and any compassion, they would know that there's only one way to love you. It is to take care of that thing the paralysis. And what you need to know is that when you do that to the Lord, his word to you is something like, if you come to him in real faith, son, daughter, take courage. Your sins are forgiven. That is, even the one who comes to Jesus with what feels like a paralysis, in that—with that level of absolute desperation, and you think that is your absolute need. What Jesus says is it, I know you feel that way. And I want you to have hope. But you need to know that if I capitulate to this lie, you will never be healed. You'll never be healed. And the worse the paralysis, the more tempting the misunderstanding. What Jesus is saying unequivocally, and that this crowd misunderstands, is that in absolute terms, our problem with sin, what it does to our relationship with God, what it does within ourselves and making us blind and deaf and paralyzed and possessed, and so—and dead, and I could go on—is a deeper and more foundational suffering than a paralysis. Do you understand? And so when you come to God with um, unemployment, and cancer, and emotional trauma that's making your life really hard to live, and difficulty in a marriage, or a relationship with somebody, or not knowing what the future is going to bring, or like something that you feel like is like extremely painful and difficult, and you're you're coming to God with with what you feel like is like a paralysis. You're like, "If, if, if you cared at all, Oh, you would see the state that I'm in and you would make that your first priority. Anybody who cared at all would make this their first priority. How can you be so heartless? Right? And you need to understand that like Jesus does not get anxious. Do you understand? In the Bible, God feels a lot of emotions. Okay? A lot of emotions. We're going to get into that in in the third thing. Anxiety is not one of them. When you express your pain and your anxiety to God, he does not respond back with his own anxiety, and and so he does whatever you want. That that will never happen. Not once in in all of the history of the cosmos will God get pulled into our chronic anxiety and do whatever we want. Ever. You understand? He will look us in the eye, and he will say, son or daughter, take heart. Find hope. Your sins are forgiven. And then sometimes— to show to all watching who don't receive a miracle, he will also do a miracle with that thing. And sometimes you don't even realize that in forgiving your sins and beginning to work in you, he's working on the thing far beneath the thing that's creating the paralysis in your life. And so when he heals this, you're ready to heal this to where he can heal this and this, and ultimately to where this is healed. The thing that's, that's destroying you. But there may be ten layers of that which to be healed between really being made right with God, to really having peace with God, and knowing him, and to follow him, and to surrender everything to him, and to be ready for him to make you into whatever he wants you to be, and being ready to face whatever tragedy and failure comes into your life, as long as you are walking with him in real faith, such that he can do in you what has to be done, so as to heal on many layers of your life. And in some cases, doing incredible miracles really powerful things in his providence for your good, right? But your everlasting happiness is his priority, more than your pain, more than your death. Right? Okay, <clears throat> I've got an even happier point for the third one. You guys are gonna love this, okay? <clears throat> so in the third story, Jesus leaves there, and he walks by this guy named Matthew, a tax tax collector, and he says, come and follow me. And he leaves his tax collecting booth and follows him, and then immediately you're in a scene where you're at Matthew's house, and everybody's having a party, and there's a bunch of other tax collectors and just sinners, just generically, which who knows who they are, right? Um, There's often, often a duality in the New Testament with Jesus, where it's like tax collectors and prostitutes, right? So maybe that's who else is there. I mean, who knows? but bad people. Roman soldiers, maybe. You know, stuff like that, right? And they're having this meal, and so the teachers of the law, like these guys who are like Jewish leaders, are like, like, (coughs) hey, to the disciples, they're not talking to Jesus. Hey, like, why does your teacher like sit and eat with these people who are like really terrible sinners? Right? Now, it's important to recognize You guys, this is very important because we want to sit here because we think of ourselves as like really liberal-minded, open-minded, loving, forgiving people. We look at these people and we're like, oh, the Pharisees, there they go. Legalism, judging, they're awful, right? Let me hate this person on Twitter. You know, it's like we, we are an incredibly judgmental people. And Christians, non-Christians, Americans, Madisonians. Listen, I've I've never lived anywhere, anywhere near as judgmental as Madison in my life. I've lived in seven or eight different places, very different places in the country, um, liberal towns, conservative towns. I have never lived anywhere as abusive and judgmental as Madison. Okay, now it may be because I'm a Christian, and Christians are kind of a minority here, and so we ta- I take it on the chin a little bit more here. i am not sure. I think it just might be generally just the case. We're just pretty uppity people, you know? Um, but he- here's the thing. Judgmental people have a point. Do you understand? They're not just like making it up. Sin is bad. It really hurts people. And when you're trying to be a good person, and other people do not appear to be trying, That is very frustrating. You know what I mean? Here's an example of this. People who hate welfare. Okay? You understand, like, that helping the poor is an important thing. But they can get a little frustrated paying other people's bills. You understand? Like, that's not crazy. Right? Or people who (coughs) think— Here, I'll attack—I'll attack liberals now. People who think that, like, being judgmental at all, not approving of something other people like, is like the worst human sin, right? Not realizing that shame is what holds human societies together, because you have to communicate to people when they're behaving in an untrustworthy fashion. That's how you create social cohesion, and so we have to disapprove of each other as human beings, or we'll all kill each other, right? And yet, it's just like, oh, those people are just awful, you know? It's like, well— you see, most judgmental people have a point, right? Not approving of people who are not in the mainstream, but who are legitimately doing what they have a right to do, right? Whether they're LGBTQ people or gun owners, you know? Like, you, like they may be a minority, but they have the right to do that thing, whatever. And so, right? So judge, judgmental people have a point. And so when the Pharisees are like, look, you realize these people are fleecing the Jewish people to give money to Rome so that they could be rich. Like, you realize this. Like, in the prostitutes, like, you realize prostitution is not a victimless crime. It's a—everybody's a victim crime. Literally, the prostitute, it's a crime against her. It's a crime against the man. The man is committing a crime against the woman. They're both committing a crime against the wife. They're all committing a crime against the children. Everybody's committing a crime against the entire society. Like, these are not victimless crimes. Like, people who are judgmental have a point. That's why you're judgmental right? But, people who are really trying to be good, but aren't good, which is most of us who are trying to be good. Instead of pursuing the very heart of divine love, we tend to adjust the law so that it kind of sounds like God's law, but it doesn't really demand the self-giving love But we still get to be good people. Right? That's called legalism. You change the law so that it suits you, but that the great demands of love no longer make your life hard. Does that make sense? And when you do that, you've got to keep that game going. So the unrighteous people, in order for them to be good people, now they don't have to believe in the Lord and actually pursue divine love in real holiness. They have to play your legalism game. You understand? And so now what happens is you put a burden on the people who are being wicked, and you're telling them if you're going to not be wicked anymore, you've got to play our legalism game, and here is the burden I'm going to put on you for you to climb the ascent of stairs to be a good person in my legalism game. (coughs) In this, in this passage, um, and this story is told both in Luke and Mark, there is a Jewishism that—because Matthew—most people think Matthew's gospel is written mainly to Jews, where if you—if you understood Jewish stuff, you would understand his gospel better. He, he quotes an Old Testament verse that the other two gospel writers don't quote. It's from Hosea, chapter 6, verse 6, and it says, I wanted mercy, not sacrifice. Now, there's not a lot of places in the Bible where God says that, because God says in the Bible he wants sacrifice, that sacrifices are a means by which we atone for sin, and God offers forgiveness to human beings, right? However, Hosea was written to the northern tribes of Israel. Get it? No, you don't get it. It's fine. Jews who heard this would have gotten it. The northern tribes of Israel came up with their own system of sacrifice and worship that was disconnected from the temple of God and disconnected from the real priests of God. And so it looked a lot like the religion of Judah, which was the religion of the Bible, but it was actually totally different. They had their own big like calves and like stuff, their idols that they worshiped, and they worshiped God and Baal and Ashtray and whoever thought that they would do something good for them. And so they did all these things that looked like the Jewish religion, but they were not the Jewish religion. But what they were doing was killing people and stealing from widows, and doing all kinds of unjust things. And so you get to Hosea 6, and God is reading them the riot act. You are going to die. And, it's, and you get to Hosea, and it starts with this, like, really beautiful song of repentance where they say, come, let us return to the Lord. He has torn us to pieces, but he will heal us. He has injured us, but he will bind up our wounds. After two days, he will receive us. On the third day, he will restore us, that we may live in his presence. Let us acknowledge the Lord, and let us us press on to acknowledge him. As surely as the sun rises, he will appear. He will come to us like the winter rains, like the spring rains that water the earth. Right? Which is like, yeah, that's beautiful. After five chapters of you're going to die, like, they finally got it. This is so great. Right? And God's response is, in the next verse, What can I do with you, Ephraim? What can I do with you, Judah? Your love is like the morning mist, like the early dew that disappears. Therefore, I cut you to pieces with my prophets. I killed you with the words of my mouth. My judgment flashed like lightning upon you. For I desire mercy, not sacrifice, and acknowledgement of God rather than burnt offerings. Like Adam, you've broken the covenant, and you were unfaithful to me. Gilead is a city of wicked men, stained with the footprints of blood. As marauders lie in ambush for a man, so do the bands of priests. They murder on the road to Shechem, committing shameful crimes. I've seen a horrible thing in the house of Israel, and so on. see the point? He's saying, listen, you've got a nice fake religion you've worked up for yourself, and it is, it is making you 10 times worse. And the way we know this is, what I asked for in the Torah outside of the first chapters of Leviticus, was justice. I asked you to treat people well. The vast majority of the Torah is not about the sacrificial system. It's about treating people justly, and when they were found in misfortune, mercifully. And that was part of humility that flowed from the fear of the Lord. Or, like it says three times in that passage, acknowledging God, having real faith. That if you have real faith, you really acknowledge God for who he is, the first dictate of that is that you would behave in comparison to his character, and God is merciful. The whole point of this repentant passage is that people are saying, look, we have been terrible, and God has pronounced judgment on us, but if we turn to him, the same one who would crush us will heal us. He is merciful to the wicked, like us. Let's do it. (coughs) And God's like, except that you don't. Even your repentance is kind of like a show. Like you can come up and you can cry, and you can be like, I love Jesus, and oh God save me, and let's do an altar call, Nick, and I'll go up for prayer, and I'll like— but like in, in God's mind, he's like, listen, what I wanted was you first for you to stop committing crimes. I wanted you to stop like throwing somebody out of your life because they said something you disagreed with or because they didn't like live up to your expectations for a minute. I wanted you to like be able to care about your children even when they hit like the hormonal insanity of the preteen ages and they start acting like full-blown idiots and you want to wring their little necks for how ungrateful they are. But you, but you stick with them through that period of their life because like they're struggling too, right? Like, like, you show mercy. Why does he demand that we show mercy? And the answer is because God shows mercy. He's making us to be like him. He wants us to act, not to like do a bunch of religious stuff that looks like what he told us to do, but isn't even what he told us to do, and so then just not feel compelled to love. And love is expressed in this idea of mercy, loving the people who don't deserve it. Because he says in the scriptures, he says, listen, it's mercy that leads people to repentance. It is the kindness of God that draws people in. It's not your legalism with all of its burden that you want people to live up to so they can be really good and hold the culture together. It's that you turn to them who have deserved nothing, and you say, look, if you will come, I will embrace you right now. Or like Jesus said to Matthew, come follow me. And you just did, and that was enough. Now he followed him to quite a ride. That wasn't it. But he he followed him. You see? And so when when Jesus says, go find out what it means, and in Matthew's gospel, Jesus quotes that verse twice. He quotes it again in chapter twelve. Go find out what it means. I desire mercy, not sacrifice. Especially when he is himself the sacrifice. We're not doing any sacrifices. Jesus did the sacrifice, because we're not supposed to do that for him. We're not supposed to be like Jesus hanging on the cross, but what we are supposed to be like Jesus is people of mercy. And we're not. You know? And so it's really easy to misunderstand him, and he has to do this. If Jesus doesn't do this, talk like this, then we will all become our own kind of legalist. You know? Like when you're trying to be a good person, what the flesh will always produce is a legalism where you don't have to really die in loving others, but you've got a system of goodness that you do that you think will make things work, and you're going to invite people to that rather than to the merciful one. Does that make sense? So if we—if you want to be healed— in the deepest possible way, if you want to experience what God calls salvation, then what has to happen is you have to realize that you are probably blind, deaf, paralyzed, and possessed. Sin isn't just about guilt. It's about what it does to our heart and soul and mind and what we are able to receive and believe and live out. He wants you to be able to see and have ears to hear, and to be able to move with the energies of love, and to be dispossessed of the control of the slavery of sin. And in order to do that, you need to realize what he's really like. You can't make a Jesus in your own image. He can cure in you the incurable. The absolutely incurable. What you think is beyond the pale, he can cure. But he will destroy with it your unclean pursuits. And those go together, and there's no way to take them apart because they're both love. And you need to realize that though you present him with your paralysis, what you believe anybody who really loved, would, he, would, he would take it away. He would do something about it. He would heal it right then. And he, his word to you is, take heart, my son or daughter. Your sins are forgiven. And that you have to start there, rather than where you wanted to start. And that's love. That's real healing. And third, you have to realize that when you do try to believe and try to be a good person and try to live out God's will, that indwelling sin has an incredible ability to trick you and us. And we think that we're becoming ever more Christian. and Sometimes we're really coming up with a new law that fits our little subculture that feels really good, but that really doesn't demand that much of us, which feels great. To be, to have everything at no cost to ourselves sounds fantastic, but it's, it's a poison, you know? It's an idolatry. It's a, it's sacrificing everything alive for something that is totally dead. And therefore he demands of us, he says, listen, I want mercy. That's what I want. I want mercy. You want to know what to do? Next, you don't know all the commands of the Bible? Okay. Well, read it, but I'll tell you what they're all doing. They're expressing mercy, all of them. Either what they protect you from, or what they save you out of, or they're all mercy, and that's what I want. Right? And as Christians, we have to just constantly kind of be going back to that. Like what what is truthful mercy? What is what the apostle John would later call grace and truth together? And I think only—I mean, that—listen, you guys, that's, that's barely a page and a quarter in the Bible. You keep reading, and it looks like, it's just a new thing on every page. And that will either make you want to, like, run as fast as you can from God, or make you feel, like, incredibly excited about all you're going to learn in the incredibly terrifying pursuit of what it looks like to love like God and be loved by God. To live a life of real mercy. In a world in which mercy is not the most pursued virtue. And I'll end with this. But if we do that, if we do that, We won't be heaping burdens on people because of our legalism, and the wicked might come. And listen, that's what we want our church full of. We want our church full of wicked people. Like me. Let's pray. Lord God, as we we think about this stuff, and we think about healing, we we want to be healed. We want that thing in our life that feels like a paralysis to be healed. And we pray, Lord, that you would help us to see and accept you as you really are from the means by which you act in such a way as to receive you, to have our sins forgiven, to see ourselves as your sons and daughters, to embrace what you're gonna take away even with, when with the other hand you give, healing from the incurable. We pray that in so doing, you would keep us very close to you so that we would always remember that you want mercy, not our fake sacrifices. Pray in Jesus' name, amen.